Charles Simeon was a long and faithful preacher at Trinity Church in Cambridge, England. And when I say long and faithful, I mean long and faithful. He served as the pastor of that congregation for 54 years. He began preaching as the church's pastor on November 10th, 1782, and remained the congregation's pastor until November 13th, 1836. One biographer suggested that Charles Simeon did not like labels. <clears throat> Though he was known as a Calvinist, he did not like that label. In fact, without abandoning his doctrinal convictions, Simeon endeavored to find fellowship in the gospel with those on the opposite side of the theological spectrum. This is clear from his well-known conversation with John Wesley, who was a self-confessed Arminian. According to H.G.C. Moole's biography, this is how that conversation between Simeon, uh, a Calvinist, and Wesley, an Arminian, transpired. Simeon said, Sir, I understand that you are called an Arminian, and I have been sometimes called a Calvinist, and therefore I suppose we are to draw daggers. But before I consent to begin the combat, with your permission, I will ask you a few questions. Pray, sir. Do you feel yourself a depraved creature, so depraved that you would have never thought of turning to God if God had not first put it into your heart? Wesley said, yes, I do indeed. Simeon, and do you utterly despair of recommending yourself to God by anything you can do and look for salvation solely through the blood and righteousness of Christ? Wesley, yes, solely through Christ. Simeon, but sir, supposing you were at first saved by Christ, are you not somehow or other to save yourself afterwards by your own works? Wesley, no, I must be saved by Christ from first to last. Simeon, allowing then that you were first turned by the grace of God, are you not in some way or other to keep yourself by your own power? Wesley, no. Simeon, what then are you to be upheld every hour and every moment by God as much as an infant in its mother's arms? Wesley, yes, altogether. Simeon, and is all your hope in the grace and mercy of God to preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom? Wesley, yes, I have no hope but in him. Simeon, then sir, with your leave, I will put up my dagger again. For this is all my Calvinism. This is my election, my justification by faith, my final perseverance. It is in substance all I hold. And as I hold it, and therefore, if you please, instead of searching out terms and phrases to be a ground of contention between us, we will cordially unite in those things wherein we agree. What's the point? Well, I bring up this conversation between a so-called Calvinist and an Arminian, because this morning we wade into the deep theological waters of the doctrines that these two men discussed. As we continue our study in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, we have the privilege of considering what it means for God to choose sinners for salvation. In our passage, Paul says that God chose the Thessalonians for salvation. We want to reflect on the truth of this doctrine and consider why Paul might have thought that it was so important to mention it in his letter. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 
verses 13 through 17. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage, I believe, on page 989. 989 of the Bibles provided. And while you're turning there, let me allow you to, uh, please allow me just to give a little bit of background on Paul's letter. So far in our study of Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, we have met uh, the men whose names head this letter, Paul and Sylvanus and Timothy. We learned how God has used them to actually establish this church. The, the church was young in their faith when Paul was torn away from them. He was the main teacher, probably the main author of this letter sometime in 50-51 AD. This church was left on their own to grow and face several difficult situations. Fellow brothers and sisters, fellow Christians in the congregation had died. The church was persecuted for their faith in Jesus. And they faced the, the normal afflictions that come with living in a fallen world. All of that would have been enough to shake up the church. But something else happened that actually prompted Paul to write this letter. Uh, what, what happened? Some strange teaching concerning the day of the Lord had come into the church. Some people had been teaching that the day of the Lord, Jesus' return, had already come. This was contrary, clearly contrary to Paul's teaching. As we studied uh, the first part of chapter 2, last week we saw that Paul uh, really wanted to address this and take this teaching head on. Uh, Paul told the church that Christ had not yet come. Paul urged the church not to be shaken or alarmed by this false teaching because the day of the Lord had not yet come. Now, in his letter, Paul pivots and reminds them of why they can stand firm. Instead of being like a, a ship blown from its moorings, they can remain faithfully tied down in this storm because of their eternal election to salvation and glory. In other words, instead of being alarmed, they can be assured of their hope of heaven because God has ordained in eternity past that they would obtain glory. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Paul writes, beginning in verse 13. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. We're going to study these three verses under three headings. First, Paul's thanks. Second, Paul's instruction. And third, Paul's prayer. Paul's thanks, Paul's instruction, and Paul's prayer. This passage teaches us that God sovereignly brought the Thessalonians to faith in Jesus Christ so that he might bring them into Jesus' glory. It was in view of God's purpose of grace that Paul urged and instructed them to stand firm. And he prayed that the Lord would establish them in every good work and word. Let's begin by considering our first point, Paul's thanks. Uh, let's read verses 13 and 14 again. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. 
But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The beginning of verse 13 there denotes, delineates a clear contrast. The word but forces us to remember the verses that have just come before. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Paul has just urged the Thessalonians not to be deceived. He has even told them that there would be a group of people who would be deceived. In particular, as you can see from verse 10 of chapter 2, they are those who refuse to love the truth, those who take pleasure in unrighteousness. Just consider the contrast that Paul sets forth in these verses. The Thessalonians are those who are loved by the Lord, chosen for salvation, sanctified by the Spirit, and called through the gospel for the purpose of obtaining glory. Again, this is a sharp contrast with those who are mentioned in verses 10, 11, and 12. The reason that the Thessalonians don't need to be alarmed is because of God's sovereign love in bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul, he actually feels duty-bound to give thanks to God for bringing about this contrast. He says that he ought, moral kind of imperative there, he ought always to give thanks to God. It's good and right for him to give thanks to God for this. And notice who he gives thanks to God for. He gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians. He gives thanks to God for his brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how I prayed uh, for many of you this past week as I prayed through our church's membership directory. I gave thanks to God for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I gave thanks to God for, for loving you and giving you to me as my spiritual family. We should give thanks to God for our salvation and for the salvation of our brothers and sisters in Christ. All of God's people are beloved by the Lord. And for this, we should give thanks. Paul, he explains to the Thessalonians and to us why it's right for him to give thanks to God. Because, because God chose the Thessalonians as the first fruits to be saved. And there's a lot to unpack here. Um, but we're helped in somewhat knowing that this is a subject that Paul has already mentioned to the Thessalonians. In his first letter, Paul mentioned that he chose the Thessalonians for salvation. So if you were to flip over a couple of pages to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you'd see in verse 4 that Paul said, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul, he, he genuinely loves these brothers and sisters in the faith. But he was not the first to love them. God was the first to love them. And he has loved them for a really, 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 really long time. God loved the Thessalonians, and all Christians for that matter, from before the foundation of the world. This is the point that Paul makes in his letter to the Ephesians. So keeping one finger in 2 Thessalonians 2, sorry, I had you flip a couple of pages. Turn over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, I specifically want to look at verses 3 through 6. If you're using one of the Bibles provided there, it's on page 976. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through Sorry, verses 3 through 6. Uh, Paul, Paul writes this. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In love, God predestines or chooses His children for adoption through Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. In other words, God determined that He would bring fallen sinners into His redeemed family, His heavenly family. Turning back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we can see that Paul, when Paul says that the church is beloved by the Lord and chosen by God, what I think he's saying is that God's love explains their salvation. The Thessalonians were chosen for salvation because of God's love. In Romans chapter 8, verse 29, Paul effectively says that God, those whom God foreknew or foreloved, we could say, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God's love, his choice, his predestinating sinners for salvation has the aim of bringing them into his heavenly family. Now, what is so amazing about this is that God the Father wasn't childless. God wasn't sonless. He already had a son. He already had an heir. And yet, he has made us co-heirs with Christ. He has made us his children. God's love toward us in Christ is unbelievable, except, except that he's told us that we should believe it. Because it's true. It's, it's no wonder that the Apostle John exclaims in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. God's love is the reason for God's choice. And God's love for and choice of the Thessalonians here, mentioned here, is, is reminiscent of his love and choice of the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7. So you can keep one finger here again and turn to the Old Testament. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, uh, specifically verses 6 and 8. Uh, 6 through 8. If you're using one of the Bibles, right, that's on page 152. You take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Here the Lord is speaking about his choice of the people of Israel, his, to be his people, the people that he would set his name upon. And we'll see the reason that he chose them is because of love. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. See how much he loves his people. Chose you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Why did God choose Israel? Simply because he decided to love them. Why does God choose people for salvation today? We have no other explanation in the scripture other than he loves them. 
Turning back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we can see that it was the same for the Thessalonians. It's also the same for us who believe and are saved. What does it mean for God to choose people for salvation? It means that in eternity past, God the Father, out of His great love, plans not only that the work of redemption would be accomplished by Christ, but also that the benefits of Christ's work of redemption would be applied through the Holy Spirit in the lives of many sinners. Before time began, God purposed to save a people for Himself through Jesus. And in time, He saves people through Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. God sets them apart by the Holy Spirit. He sanctifies sinners. That's what sanctification is. It's a setting apart. Sanctification occurs in two ways. There is definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is where God sets a sinner apart for salvation and progressive sanctification grows out of that definitive sanctification. So progressive sanctification is where God progressively makes us, grows a believer in Christ's likeness. Progressive sanctification is the process whereby God makes His definitive sanctification, His setting apart of a believer, manifest and visible. Here, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul is clearly talking about definitive sanctification. God brought the Thessalonians to salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. God set the Thessalonians apart by the Spirit. And this occurs in connection with divine truth. We see that at the end of verse 13. The Thessalonians were saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. In contrast to those who refuse to believe the truth and so be saved, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, the Thessalonians believed the truth. The truth is that the Father sent His Son into the world to accomplish the work of salvation for sinners. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, sinners may be saved. But sinners must believe the truth that Jesus lived, died, and was raised from the grave for them. Faith, or belief, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, comes by hearing the word of Christ. So how is it that sinners are saved? The truth about Jesus is preached and proclaimed and the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of sinners, hearing the truth, giving them regenerate hearts, and those sinners respond to the preaching about Jesus with belief in Jesus. This happens, this sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth happens because God chose them for salvation. This is how salvation happens. Now, at this point, uh, some Christians become hesitant about the doctrine of predestination or election. So what we're talking about, we're talking about God choosing sinners for salvation. As Bible-believing Christians, we have to have a doctrine of predestination because as we see, it's right here in 2 Thessalonians and in many other places in the Bible. Some of the concerns about this teaching raised are understandable. And I think they're also answerable. For, for example, some of our fellow brothers and sisters in the faith are made nervous by the doctrine of predestination because they're worried that it will kill our zeal for evangelism. I think that an argument could be made that the Apostle Paul was the most evangelistic person who ever lived, and yet he taught this doctrine. He did, after all, evangelize the Thessalonians. He told them that they needed to believe in Jesus. 
he recognized that he needed to evangelize. He, perhaps more than any other, had a profound awareness of the truth of God's sovereignty and salvation. That God sovereignly saves sinners should positively actually encourage us to evangelize, just as it did Paul. Those who believe in the biblical doctrine of predestination, God's choosing sinners for salvation, ought to be the most energetic evangelists. So if you're a Calvinist, you should be constantly confessing Christ to people who don't know him, so that they might come to know him and believe in him. Paul says something unique about the Thessalonians that ought to further our zeal for evangelism, to share the good news. He says, as you'll notice there in the middle of verse 13, that they were the first fruits to be saved. Paul, he's using this agricultural image here to say that the Thessalonians were some of the first people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The first fruits were those fruits which first emerged from a crop to be harvested. The Thessalonians were some of the first people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Their faith was a signal that more and more would come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is not done gathering in the harvest. So let's be busy boldly telling people about the Savior. You know, this past week, a number of you shared with me some evangelistic conversations that you're having. Praise God and keep going. Keep praying that the Lord will work in their hearts and keep proclaiming Jesus Christ. Let's pray that more and more people would come to know Him and love Him and serve Him. Children, youth, young adults, I wonder if your hearts have been stirred by the Holy Spirit. Have you been convinced and convicted of your sins? Have you been persuaded to embrace Jesus Christ in faith? God has placed you in the path of the gospel and faith comes by hearing. So, so hear what your parents are teaching. Hear what your Sunday school teachers are teaching. Hear what I'm teaching about Jesus and believe. Ask your parents how they became convinced of the truth of the gospel. I think and I hope that would be an encouraging conversation to have this afternoon or this evening. Why did God call the Thessalonians to salvation? Paul tells us in verse 14. When Paul preached the gospel, he preached the good news about Jesus Christ, God's Spirit worked in the hearts of the Thessalonians. The Holy Spirit convinced the Thessalonians of their sin. He enlightened their minds in the knowledge of Christ, renewed their wills, persuaded, and enabled them to embrace Jesus Christ, who had been freely offered to them in the gospel, for the purpose of them obtaining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? Obtaining the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What does it mean for the Thessalonians, for believers to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, reaching or obtaining the glory of Jesus it brings glory to Jesus. What glory does Jesus now have? Jesus' glorification consists in his, his rising again from the dead on the third day and ascending up into heaven and sitting at the right hand of God the Father. At his resurrection, Jesus received a glorified body, a body which could never again succumb to disease, decay, or death. God, he, he effectually called Thessalonians. And we who believe to salvation through spirit-empowered preaching of the gospel so that they would obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has now made us 
new creatures in Christ inwardly so that we will reach the new creation. Inwardly, you know, Paul says in one of his letters in, to, to the church in Corinth that we're outwardly we're wasting away. But inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That's the beginning of the work and one day we're going to reach heavenly glory when Jesus returns and gives us resurrected bodies. We will receive glorified bodies like the body that Jesus Christ now has. Bodies which will never again be subject to disease, decay, and death. I was sitting yesterday evening talking with a friend who just shared with me another one of her friends had been diagnosed with cancer. And I just thought, Lord, give us glory. We want these bodies that are no longer going to suffer these things here on earth. We want to reach that glory. Lord, be at work glorifying us now and come, Lord Jesus, so we can reach that glory. The Lord Jesus has come so that we might obtain His glory. And this, this will bring glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is mighty to overcome all of the effects of the fall, both spiritual as well as physical. And we will see this in the new heavens and the new earth. And we see it now in our lives as He's bringing people to faith in Jesus Christ and making them new creatures. Now, for a moment, I want to speak to those of you who are here this morning and you're not followers of Jesus. I understand that for many of you, this, this idea of, of predestination might be just incredibly repugnant. Um, at some level, I get that. But friend, we must let God be God and reveal His own will and way. You know, part of our, our fundamental problem as fallen human beings is actually that we want to be God. So it, it almost doesn't matter how God might set up how sinners come to salvation. Because our natural response would be to question and criticize His way. Because our way is always better. I mean, we can see this. I can see this uh, very prideful attitude worked out in our human relationships. You know, in, in my home... I think that I know the best way to load the dishwasher. You're laughing. You think that I don't load the dishwasher. I do, and I know the best way to load it. Um, my way is best. As, as human beings, it's, it's our default position to think that we know best. And so we object to God's design. You know, another objection we might have could be rooted in the idea that God's sovereignty and salvation obliterates human freedom. And it makes us all kind of like robots. Now, I've met most of you, and I'm pretty sure that none of you are robots. Um, and, and just ask your Christian friend that when they came to faith in Jesus Christ, did they feel like a robot? Did they feel like they were doing something contrary to their will or something that they wanted to do, that they actually recognized that, that they're a sinner and that Jesus is their Savior, and they wanted to embrace Him and be faith and be saved by Him? It's, it's the most natural thing that takes place in the life of a Christian. That we want to embrace Jesus Christ in faith. God's sovereignty and salvation is not at, all that idea, not at all at odds with the idea that we make real, meaningful, significant decisions in this life. God's sovereignty is actually compatible with human responsibility. God's sovereignty shows us that we're responsible before Him. 
and that we can and should respond to him. And, and here is your responsibility, friend. You are responsible to respond to the truth about Jesus. God holds people responsible for how they respond to the truth about Jesus. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul mentions a group of people who refused to love the truth and so be saved. They refused to respond positively to the truth. And so they will be judged for their rejection of the truth. Set aside for a moment your questions about God's sovereignty and ask yourself this question. How have I responded to the truth? The way to respond, the way to be saved, is to love the truth. The way to be condemned is to refuse to love the truth. So what will you do, friend? Friend, love the truth and so be saved. And this is the truth. That God has made the world. He's made the world and all that is in it. He is the author of your life. He is the author of my life. He called us. He created us to live for Him, to love Him, to serve Him, to glorify Him. But just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we have all decided to oppose God and exalt ourselves as God. We've all chosen to live our own way instead of God's way because we know what's best. And that's what the Bible calls sin. In our sin, we are exalting ourselves over God. We are setting ourselves up as a higher authority over the author of our lives. Sin, you see, is nothing less than rebellion against God. And because God is holy, just, and good, He must punish sin. We learn from another one of Paul's letters that the wages, the payment that's due to sin, is death, eternal death. We are in danger of facing God's just punishment of our sin forever in hell. But the good news of the Bible is that in love, God sent His one and only most beloved Son to live the life that we've not lived. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He never sinned, and yet He died for sinners. On the cross, Jesus took upon Himself the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those whoever turned from their sins and trust in Him. Jesus calls us to turn from our love of unrighteousness, to turn from our love of living for ourselves, to turn to loving God and living for Him, to turn to loving the truth about His Son. And Jesus calls us to believe the truth. Jesus calls us to believe that not only He lived for us and died for us, but He's also raised for us. Three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the grave, vindicating him and proving to us all that his life and behalf, on behalf of repenting sinners, his death in their place, was acceptable in God's sight. That's what his resurrection proves. And friends, this is what it means to love and believe the truth. It means loving the God who sent his son to give his life for the salvation of sinners. If you love the truth, if you love Jesus, then you will be saved. And if you want to know more about what it means to love the truth and so be saved, please do find me at the door after the service. Talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came with here this morning. The most important person you will respond to this morning is God. And the most important response that you will give Him is either a refusal to love the truth about Jesus or a faith-filled embrace of the truth. Believe the truth and be saved. You know, thinking about these verses and thinking about all that God has done to save sinners, you wonder, how could Paul not thank God? 
for his choice of the Thessalonians. How could Paul not thank God for the salvation of the Thessalonians? It had to remind him of how gracious God had been toward him in his own salvation. In light of the day of the Lord, the coming rebellion, and the revelation of the man of lawlessness mentioned there in chapter 2, God's choice of the Thessalonians also ought to stiffen the spine of the Thessalonians, to strengthen them. And this is what Paul pivots to instruct the Thessalonians on in verse 15. So let's turn and consider our second point, Paul's instruction. Paul's instruction. Here we're looking at just verse 15. Paul writes there, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Here, Paul instructs, urges, we could probably even say commands, the Thessalonians to stand firm and hold to the traditions that they were taught by Paul and his companions. Standing firm and holding on to his teachings are imperatives from Paul here. This is something that the Thessalonians are to consciously do. Rather than be alarmed or shaken from their moorings, chapter 2, verse 2, instead, they were to remain unmoved and hold fast to the apostles' teaching. We'll come back to this in just a moment, but for now we need to see what Paul is basing this instruction on. Paul's so then there in verse 15 has an important function in this instruction. Why should the Thessalonians stand firm and hold fast to the apostles' teaching? Understand how Paul is using those two words, those so then, will help us to answer that question. By saying so then, Paul is effectively saying, since God chose you and called you, and set you apart by the work of the Spirit, all the stuff mentioned in verses 13 and 14, since God has done all of that, you must stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught. In other words, Paul is making the Thessalonians' eternal election to salvation the foundation and reason for this imperative to stand firm and hold to his teaching. As I said, God's sovereignty and salvation does not obliterate human responsibility. God's sovereignty actually motivates human responsibility. The Thessalonians must act and live in light of their calling. This is sometimes known as the indicative and imperative dynamic in Paul's writings. The indicative is something that's already true, and the imperative is something you're supposed to do. Here Paul brings them together and says that because God chose you, indicative, you're to hold fast, imperative. The imperative, the, sorry, the indicative is the motivation for the imperative. The truth is the motivation for life. God's sovereignty and the salvation of sinners is not, should not, and cannot become the grounds of slothfulness and passivity in the Christian life. Instead, it must be the ground of a Christian's determined, active perseverance in this life, which occurs through standing firm and holding to the apostolic witness about Jesus. Because God determined that you would be called to salvation and obtain the glory of Christ, you, Christian, need to be determined to make it to glory. And you do that by standing firm and holding to the apostolic witness about Jesus. You need to stand firm against false teaching, what Paul mentioned there in verses 1 through 12. And you need to hold on to true teaching. It is not only how, it's not only how you keep from being alarmed, verses 1 through 12, it's also how you persevere, verse 15. So what is this tradition that the Thessalonians are to hold on to? Notice how Paul describes it in verse 15. 
He says that it's something that was taught by him and his colleagues. And that this teaching came in the form of their spoken word or by their letter. Now, I, I cannot stress to you how important this is. We need to take in kind of several pieces of information here. First, notice that tradition is categorized as teaching. Tradition is categorized as teaching. Paul didn't give the Thessalonians a bunch of hocus-pocus magic tricks and religious ceremonies to make their lives as Christians better. He gave them teaching. Tradition is teaching. Second, notice that Paul places his, his written teaching on the same authoritative level as his oral teaching. Third, notice that it is taken for granted that they're not at odds with one another. The Roman Catholic Church likes to suggest that some of their practices stem from the Apostles' tradition. If that's the case, then why are they so often at odds with the Apostles' written teaching? Perhaps those Roman Catholic traditions are not as apostolic as the church in Rome might like to suggest. Fourth, the reason that the Apostles' teaching is tradition is because it comes from a divinely ordained, commissioned Apostle who received authority from the Lord Jesus Christ to instruct the church on the truth of His kingdom. So what is this tradition? Herman Ritterboss in his book, Redemptive History and the New Testament Scriptures, rightly points out that the tradition of which the New Testament speaks is nothing else than the authoritative proclamation that was entrusted to the apostles as Christ's witnesses and as the foundation of His church. Ritterboss goes on to say that this tradition then is... The word of the living Lord. It is the authoritative word from Christ about Christ. The only tradition that we are to hold fast to according to the scriptures are the traditions, or the traditions, uh, more specifically, the teaching of the apostles. Today, we do not have Paul's oral words spoken to the church in Thessalonica, but we do have his inscripturated words in the Bible. We have his letters. And his words in his letters are the tradition that we are to hold on to. So I, I emphasized the importance of this last week, and I'm going to do it again this week, because it's the main imperative that Paul actually gives to the church in Thessalonica in, in the verses that we're studying here. We need to know our Bibles so that we will not be deceived and moved off the teaching of the apostles. One of the reasons that I preach longer sermons is because we do not know our Bibles as well as we ought. Again, last week I, I heard uh, the story of a, of a woman who has attended church uh, for, for nearly 30 years, and she did not know the story of Ruth. The evangelical church does not know the Bible as well as it ought. And, and some of us don't read our Bibles as often as we should. For, for some of us, this gathering right here is the only spiritual food we've had this week. It's part of my responsibility before the Lord to make sure that you're holding on the, to the tradition of the apostles, which means that I've got to explain to you what the tradition is. And frankly, it just takes time. Uh, there's a great responsibility on me and the elders to preach and teach faithfully. There's also a great responsibility on me not to preach boring sermons. Uh, thought I might get an amen there. Um, there's, there's also a great responsibility on us to recognize that, that when we gather on the Lord's day, part of what is taking on is practicing 
holding on to the apostolic teaching about Jesus. So, so pray for our gatherings. Pray that we would hold fast to God's word even as he holds fast to us. Holding fast to the apostles' to teaching about Jesus is essential for making it safely to glory. Christian, you, you know, you're, you're never going to know God's word exhaustively. It's a, a well of water for thirsty souls which will never run dry. But you do need to know your Bible better than you do now. I need to know my Bible better than I do now. And if I may plead with you for a moment, please do not waste a single moment feeling guilty about how poorly you know your Bible. Don't waste a single moment. Instead, spend that moment reading it. Read about the God who knows you and loves you. He loves you, Christian. And you can learn about his love for you more and more in his word. We've heard Paul give thanks, and we've heard him instruct the Thessalonians to hold fast. Let's turn now and consider our third point, Paul's prayer. Read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. The first word in verse 16, now, uh, it's, it's the beginning of Paul's prayer there. In fact, that now kind of pulls everything else he has just said into his prayer. Paul prays, now, in view of your eternal election, indicative, and your need to hold fast to the apostolic tradition, imperative, I'm appealing to the Lord Jesus and God the Father for help. Paul knows that if the Thessalonians are to indeed hold fast, they will need the Lord's help in doing so. Paul also knows that the Lord is pleased to give his people help because all that God calls us to do, he gives us the grace to do. The, the two requests that Paul makes for the Thessalonians are, are number one, that hearts are confirmed or encouraged, comforted or encouraged, and two, that hearts are established or strengthened in every good work and word. And before Paul gets to these two petitions, he appeals to two persons God the Father and God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father and God the Son. Jesus and the Father have this power. They have divine power because they're both divine, and they can answer this prayer. Paul says that God the Father and God the Son have done three things for believers loved them, given them eternal comfort. And filled them with good hope. I don't think that these, these, these are actually three separate things. Or at least we shouldn't separate them. This love, comfort, and hope are probably aiming at explaining the same thing from kind of three different angles. Three different vantage points. I think that taken together, they actually explain the whole of our salvation. So remember earlier how we talked about that God's choice is rooted in his electing love. This election occurred in eternity past and will never be overturned. So it's the ground of comfort and assurance for all who believe. Indeed, the culmination of God's electing love and glory is the hope of all who believe. So from eternity past to eternity future, I think that's what Paul has in view here. The whole of our salvation from beginning to end. It's a good hope that we're promised here. A hope that will not disappoint. God will make good on his promises to save and grace is, of course, 
the triune God's unmerited favor towards sinners like us. Paul prays to the Lord Jesus and God the Father. He prays to those who have been gracious and who will be gracious to comfort believers who have been alarmed by this false report about the coming of Jesus Christ. Paul prays the Lord to establish them, even though he's already called them to establish themselves by holding fast to the apostolic witness. This is similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where he urged the church in Philippi to, to work out their salvation with fear and trembling because it's God who works in them, to will and to do his good pleasure. In the face of persecution and affliction, Paul wanted the Thessalonians to know that he was praying for them. He was praying for the Lord to guard them and to give them strength to glorify him in whatever they say and do. Just think about the scope of Paul's prayer for a moment. He's praying for the Lord to guard them and give them strength to glorify him in every aspect of their lives. That, that phrase, in every, every good work and word. It's an all-encompassing, uh, all-life-encompassing statement. Paul is praying for Jesus' glory in every aspect of the lives of these believers. And don't you just appreciate how Paul so particularly prays for these believers. He knew them. He knew what difficulty they were going through. And he tailored his encouragement and his prayers to their needs. Do we pray that way for one another? We, we can't unless we know one another. Christian, haven't you been encouraged by another brother or sister in Christ who has prayed for you? And haven't you been exponentially encouraged when those prayers are not so general, but really actually pretty specific to your needs? We've got pretty specific needs that we bring to our God in prayer. What if we brought those to our brothers and sisters in Christ and asked them to pray for us in those ways too? So, so the next time you're in a small group and you're asked, you know, how can we pray for you? Um, what if you took a moment and thought about how you prayed, how you personally prayed that past week? What did you ask God for? Share that. What were you burdened about? Share that. What were you concerned about? What were you pleading with God to do? Now, what if you shared that with your brothers and sisters in Christ so that they could join you in petitioning our God? And as we petition the Lord Jesus Christ and our God and Father, let's remember all that He has purposed to do for us. Let's remember just how gracious He's been, which means we should remember His power to answer our prayers. Paul doesn't cast these prayers out into an, an empty void thinking, you know, here, I, I hope this works. No, he knows God is powerful and mighty to save. And so he pleads with God, and we should do the same. We should also conclude. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, Paul gave thanks to God for bringing about the salvation of the Thessalonians that he had planned in eternity past. In view of God's grace, Paul implored and instructed the Thessalonians to hold fast to the apostolic teaching about Jesus. Paul didn't leave the matter there. He prayed that the Lord would continue to pour out His grace upon them until the end. In other words, Paul told the saints in Thessalonica that the Lord had been gracious, was being gracious, and that He would be gracious to them. Brothers and sisters, let us remember that this is true in our lives as well. God has been gracious to us. He is being gracious to us even now, and He will be gracious to us unto the end. So let us continue clinging to Him, even as He guards 
and guides us to the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.